Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if your investment portfolio was subject to weekly scrutiny by hundreds of thousands of Financial Times readers? So I took the brave, perhaps stupid step of revealing my holdings and promising readers that every week they would hear what I'm recommending and advising and I would actually do it myself and the proof would be in the table that is published each week in the paper. This is the challenge that our new investment columnist Stuart Kirk has bravely chosen to take on with his new column, Skin in the Game, which you can read every Saturday in the FT Weekend newspaper. Every week, Stuart details his progress managing his own retirement fund in his SIP, that's his self-invested personal pension. Even worse than that, uh, Claire, it's all the money I have in the world for various reasons, divorce being the main one. Um, Everything disappeared. So I have no other assets, no other unit trusts, no property, nothing else, no other savings except one SIP and one pension fund with a previous employer, which I'm hoping to put into a SIP. So everything you see is, is what you read currently worth £461,000, if his investment decisions work out, then great. But if they don't, it's a very public arena to make a mistake. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. Now, Stuart Kirk may not have millions to his name, at the moment, but what he does have is 25 years of experience in managing money, from advising portfolio managers to researching and now writing about investing. So in today's episode, I wanted to get him into the studio for an investment masterclass. He'll be sharing his views on how to choose potential stocks, understand valuation, why he isn't keen on funds that follow a particular theme, and what he thinks needs to change in the world of ESG, or sustainable investing. But before we get started, our usual caveat. Any views you hear on Money Clinic about investing are just that, our opinions. Always do your own research, and if you want professional financial advice, you'll have to find a professional financial advisor. Well, Stuart, welcome to Money Clinic. Could you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. My second only podcast. And in fact, I think you did my first. Um, So quite exciting. I feel down with the kids. Well, Um, I invited you back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. So my name is Stuart. I'm currently a, a columnist with the paper on the weekend and have a checkered history across various disciplines from 
running money to advising people running money. Um, I've done management consultancy. I've edited the Lex column in a previous guise and everything in between. So quite a varied background and CV. Now, the common thread running between all of the things that you've done in your career is investing, either investing other people's money or your own money. Now, your column in the Financial Times, which has been running since um, last autumn, is called Skin in the Game. Why did you choose this name? Right. So the name comes from my belief that unless you can see what people are invested in, their views aren't really worth the paper it's written on, unless, of course, that paper is a salmon pink. Um, (laughs) People say a lot of things. They give you a lot of views. Really, the only way to know what people really think is to see their own portfolios and to see where their money actually is. Now, I would imagine that people listening to this podcast are going to be really refreshed by the level of honesty that you have with your money, because British people are so uptight about talking about money. And that really prevents us from from learning, especially when it comes to investing, which is not an activity that all of us get to really participate in in our lives. But we ask everyone this question on the podcast, Stuart, which is, what's your earliest money memory? Uh, My earliest money memory uh, was probably on the beach in Australia when my grandfather gave me five cents to go and buy two ice creams, which I'm not that old. I can tell you it was a lot more than five cents. Yeah. (laughs) The first time I realised as a human, because you give your kids play money and things like that, that the thing in your hand was supposed to buy A, something from a vendor, and B, that the thing in your hand could be greater or less than the thing that you were trying to buy, and in this particular case, was was very much less. And how old do you think you were when your granddad gave you the five cents? Oh, five. So this was mid-70s when inflation was rampant, interest rates were high, and my parents were paying, people forget now, you know, 25 17 to 25% on their mortgage. And tell us a bit about your career running money. As you call, I love that expression, running money. How did you get into it and where has it taken you? Yes, I'm quite old. So um, I graduated in the mid-90s and a number of people told me that if they had their career again, they'd get into the asset management game. At the time, not many people knew about it, really. It was the dull corner of finance. Everyone wanted to be an investment banker or a trader or something like that. Um, So I got into asset management running Japanese equities. I'd spent my gap year in Japan, spoke a little bit of Japanese, and there was an opening at an English bank called Morgan Grenfell for being a Japanese equity analyst. So that was my way in. And in those roles, how would you define running money? You're looking after large slabs of, of cash for a big institution and deciding where in the world that money is going to be invested. That's right. So there's two broad categories. There's what you call retail asset management, sort of for mums and dads in unit trusts and things like that. And then there's what's called institutional um, asset management, and you're running money on behalf of insurance companies, pension funds, um, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds. Ultimately, all that money comes back to individuals and mums and dads, but it just depends who you're sitting across the room from, whether it's an individual or an institution. I have mostly run money for institutions. So you've said in your column, the best investors follow the data. And clearly in every job you've ever done for the FT and for everyone else, that's been at the heart of your investment process. So putting it into practice, how would you approach sizing up a potential investment? Yep. So what I mean by that statement is um, 
people get carried away and humans are, are um, very susceptible to, to manias, to fear, to greed, um, to trends. And they tend to be counter to what you really want to do. So people are uh, maximum excited, probably at the top of a market, and they're most fearful at the bottom. So when I say you need to follow the data, the data is only useful in keeping your feet grounded to allow you to not get carried away like everybody else around you and to give you an anchor point when everybody else is freaking out. (laughs) Or when everyone else is piling in. Or when everyone else is piling in. And so ultimately, equity markets tend to go up over time, but there are better moments and worse moments to buy and sell. And it's nice to have a couple of numbers there and they can fool you. It's a, dif- it's a difficult game, but it just gives you something to fall back on to give you some confidence. Now, to listeners who wouldn't have a scooby about how to approach looking at valuation of, of different companies on the stock market, could you give us some pointers and ways of understanding how professional investors like you do this? I mean, ultimately, it's the question is, do you really even need to do it? For the average retail investor who would invest in an ETF or, or an index, you really can just ignore valuation and look at a 100-year chart of the market and be happy that over time they will go up. But if you want to get into the murky game of trying to outperform an index or pick absolute individual winners, it's very, very tricky. There are ways that professionals try and do it, but the honest answer is they do it with mixed success. Um, in fact, that's even being generous. But if you're one of the people that think that you really want to give it a crack, I would recommend looking at value on the basis of cash flows. Okay. Um, readers may have heard of the term cash flow. Basically, it, companies generate revenues, the price times the volume of what they sell. Then there's a cost of what companies take to make that product. That's the costs. And then you get earnings at the end or profits. You will have heard the term profits. But profits only take you so far. You've also got things like depreciation and so on underneath that. What you want to get to is a true definition of cash in the business. That's ultimately what you want to get to. And different businesses have more or less amounts of cash. And over time, most academic research suggests that valuation measures based on cash flows is the most accurate way of predicting the performance of a stock going forward. Now, it sounds technical. I wouldn't worry about it too much because over time, broader indices and markets go up. They've done that in most markets around the world. But if you want to get down and grubby, cash flow-based metrics are the best. Now, it was always explained to me at the Investors Chronicle where I started out that cash flow was the lifeblood of a business because if it stops, it's like the circulation to your to your heart has been has been cut off. The business will fail. The money can't can't move around. Are there any particular um, businesses that have got really really good cash flow, or on the other, on the flip side, really really bad um, cash flow that you could talk about yeah. from from any point in history? Yeah. So it's first worth saying that cash flow only takes you so far. So, for example, the big um, tech companies actually had pretty poor cash flow, but have done very well. But in general, companies that spend money on big, lumpy things like factories or machines or trucks and things like that have poor cash flow metrics because they're spending huge dollops of money over large intervals of time. 
companies with excellent cash flow tend to be ones where the money comes through the door quickly. You could imagine a retailer mm-hmm. or a supermarket where they're literally wanting to give it back to you at the till. They've got so much cash. They tend to be high cash flow businesses. And you know if they have a lot of debt, they can service that debt very easily because there's a huge amount of cash in their coffers. So what does that mean? You can invest in companies with more debt if they have more cash, whereas a company with big spending commitments should have less debt. And could you give listeners a flavour of what's actually in your portfolio at the moment? Yep. So it's equity heavy. I have a large 25% allocation to UK equities, which I wrote about in my first column that people can read, mostly from a valuation point of view, to be honest. Um, I have a large exposure to global equities as well, because my pension provider didn't provide a US-only fund. So I had to get US exposure through a global equity fund, because US companies tend to be the main constituents of global funds. Indeed. I'm excited about Japan, probably because of my background. Um, It's never worked, but I really hope that this time it will. Why am I invested in Japan? It's only a 10% holding. Japan is by far the cheapest equity market on planet Earth. Trouble is, it's been the cheapest equity market on planet (laughs) Earth for 25 years. Um, But it does give you some protection if things go haywire in the world. And the hope is, perhaps irrationally, that one day Japan will come good. And finally, I have exposure to Asia. And again, that's on valuation grounds. It's quite cheap. I was hoping that China would open up post-COVID and it would relax its COVID rules. This has proved to be correct. Um, And we've had a nice rebound in in Asian stocks as well. Another topic that you've covered in your column is bonds. Could you just give us a very short little blast on what is a bond? Yes. So a bond is basically debt that companies or governments sell in order to get money through the door. And in return, they pay the person who's given you the money a coupon or a return. And that return is fixed. So a company will say, I'm going to build a new building. Can you give me some money, please? And the investor goes, sure, I'll give you some money. But you're a bit of a risky company. And the company says, well, okay, then I'll pay you 5% a year. Or uh, Argentina will come along and say, I'm broke. I would really like some money, please. And the investors will go, we'll give you some money. But boy, you've never given it back to us before. We demand 20% interest. Mm. So it's a a type of um, capital. It's a type of financing where the company or government pays a coupon, an interest rate, in order to raise that money. Been in the news for all the wrong reasons recently, but do they deserve a place in our portfolios? Yes. If you look over a 100-year view, they most certainly should be. Traditionally, people have owned bonds because they have been relatively safe. They have generated a yield that um, retirees have eaten from, and they have moved in a different direction to equity markets. So when equity markets have fallen, bonds have gone up. The trouble is, for the last 10, 15 years or so, they have tended to move in line with equity markets. And so people have begun to ask the question, why should I bother? And this has become an all-pervasive view But in general, um, in theory, they should move contrary to equity markets and therefore should be part of any portfolio, particularly after the sell-off at the end of last year, I felt, and many others felt, that they were getting cheap and they have rebounded nicely since about November. Now, you said in a recent column that you're interested to find ways of investing in the metaverse. I think you were deluged with with emails from from readers um, about that. But In terms of the themes and the sectors that you're excited about at the moment, what's on your mind? 
Yeah, so I did a, a piece on uh, sectors and thematic investing, and it was quite critical of thematic investing, actually. What, what is thematic investing? Okay, so thematic investing is instead of investing in Japan or the US, you say, I believe that there will be a growing middle class in India, or I believe in biotechnologies, or I believe that computers and robots are going to take over the world and I want to invest in companies that are exposed to computers, or I believe in the circular economy or recycling or renewables. Or the space race. Or the space race. And there are many, many themes that you can think of. So instead of picking companies or sectors or countries, you pick an idea or a theme. The trouble is with that, by the time that you've identified a theme a lot of the time, the companies have already doubled or tripled and Mm -hmm. you tend to be late to the party. So my idea was that you're better off sticking to either country exposures or old-fashioned sectors like steel, um, industrials, coal stocks, chemical stocks, etc., because they're easier to get your head around. So that was the what I was basically saying. Mm. And industrials and banking um, were two that you said you liked the most. Could you explain as an investor the reasons why they've appealed more than others? Yeah, so I'm, I'm quite a simple chap. So that, that was another reason I prefer sectors over themes. But going back to the valuation point and the data, when I look at sectors, I don't really have a strong view on which will do better, but I pick them on the basis of valuation. And um, after underperforming tech for a very, very long period of time, industrials were looking cheap on an absolute basis and also relative to their history, as were many stocks in the finance sector. With banks as well, they tend to do better when interest rates are high Mm. or rising. And I'm sure you've talked about this with your listeners before because those cheeky banks tend to not raise the amount that they're giving you on your savings and tend to raise the amount that you have to pay when you borrow. So the difference between those two things, the net interest margin, tends to widen when rates are high and banks tend to do very well. Yeah, indeed. And they have all been doing very well since the beginning of the year. Now, one way of looking at whether a company is cheap or not is a calculation known as PE. Now, somebody listening to this podcast might think PE and think being forced to go running outdoors in the mud at an English school um, in the 1980s, which is certainly what comes to my (laughs) mind. (laughs) But in investment speak, what is PE and how is it a useful way of working out whether a company's worth its salt or not? Sure. So you can imagine that every year a company makes a profit and um, it'll make the profit next year, the year after, the year after that, hopefully into the future. So all a PE is trying to do, and it stands for price earnings ratio, and it's the, the price that you pay in the market. For the shares. For the shares, divided by the earnings per share, the net profit. Um, and all it's trying to do is to say, how many years will it take for me to get my money back? Right. <laughs> That's basically what it's telling you. And if I pay 10 today, it's worth 10 years of earnings. So I will get my money back after 10 years. And so therefore, you can imagine that a company with a PE of five is more attractive because you get your money back after five years. And you still own the shares. And you still own the and shares. And you can still sell them. It was a company on 30 times takes 30 years before you get your money back. So you can imagine Amazon on 100 times 
Um, you have to be pretty confident um, that the company is going to grow very, very, very quickly, or its earnings are going to increase very, very quickly for you to take the risk to give them your money. So there are lots of problems with PE, in particular that earnings are very volatile. Is next year's earnings going to be the correct number? Is your forecast earnings going to be correct? So we as analysts spend a lot of time trying to work out whether next year's number and the years after that are accurate or not, and that's what we spend most of the time doing. But essentially what you're asking is, how long is it going to take until I get my money back? Yeah, I love it. Really, really great explanation. Now, let's talk a little bit about ESG, green investing. Now, you describe yourself as being pro-ESG, but one of the reasons that you're working for the Financial Times again is because of something that happened while you were actually at an FT conference working for for HSBC. In your own words, do you want to tell listeners about that? Because it's quite a tale. Yes, well, um, it was was a a speech I gave at an FT conference around climate risk. Um, Some people think I was talking about climate change, which I wasn't. I I never talk about the science, but it was about climate risk. And um, my my point was to make, uh, is to say to investors, overall, in the grand scheme of things, I think there are going to be more opportunities that come from the transition to a renewable future than there are risks, and that overall, you shouldn't be too worried about it. The second point I wanted to make was that we should be investing more in adapting to climate risk and climate change than worrying about mitigation. Unfortunately, some of the terms and the jokes that I used <laughs> around making that point, i.e. that, you know, don't be worried if Miami was going to be six feet underwater because Amsterdam's been six feet underwater for hundreds of years, uh, didn't go down so well with my previous employer. Um, and I was suspended and I ultimately was was forced to resign. And so many people think now that I'm anti-ESG, that I'm anti-net you know, net zero, which is absolutely not true since I was head of global head of responsible investing. So that's sort of ha- how my career ended at a large bank. Um, but I'm still very much supportive of sustainable investing. I think it's the right thing to do. And there's a right and a wrong way of doing it. What would you say are the main flaws with, with, with ESG? The main flaw is that there's no clear definition of mm-hmm. um, what a sustainable company is. And I don't think it's right that investors or asset managers should be the ones to judge what a good or a bad company is. I think we need regulators or or some government body to tell us. Some kind of sticker. Some kind of sticker, because everybody has a different view. Some people are interested in governance, the G. Some people might have a real passion around the toxic culture of a company uh, and the S. Some people may be very, very concerned about pollution and environmental factors and net zero, and therefore the E is more important to them. And companies are a very complex beast. Mm. You have, take Shell, for example, on the one hand, it it drills gas and oil. On the other hand, it's investing, you know, over a billion dollars a year in in renewables. One of the biggest. One of the biggest. You have other companies that makes, you know, recycles cartons, but on the other hand, makes cigarette packets. Who is the person to judge on whether that company is good or bad or not? Is 20% of their revenues good being enough or should it be 50 or should it be 70? It's not really for me or for anyone like me to say. But once we're told, we can then have the right sticker on the company and then the right sticker on funds. Mm. Now, Stuart, it's great to have you sitting in front of a microphone because you're not a guy who holds back. So are there any other lessons from your career running money that you'd like to pass on to Money Clinic listeners? I feel bad asking you this. You've given us so much already. 
There's theory and there's practice, and that there's a lot of theory that's not known so well to, to the generalist reader. For example, investors should be agnostic between dividends and capital gains. Companies are no more valuable giving a dividend. Dividends in themselves are not necessarily good unless you need the income. But yet we spend a lot of time at the FT and elsewhere trying to say that companies uh, are better if they pay a dividend. It's not necessarily the case. So if, if you have a long-term investment horizon, don't worry about dividends. The second thing that you often hear that is completely wrong is you hear people talk about money washing in and out of markets. Money cannot wash in and out of an equity market. The amount of money in an equity market is the same. So even yesterday in the FT, it said $21 billion goes into Chinese equities. Well, that headline could just as easily be $21 billion was sold out of Chinese um, equities because someone has to sell for every buyer. Um, but you should always be wary when people are buying in large volumes. It tends to indicate the top of a market and a, and a turning point. That's one lesson that institutional managers know very well. Point three is that interest rates don't matter very much. We spend a lot of time in the press talking about, oh, rates are going up. That's bad for equities. It's simply not true. So don't worry about that very much either. Um, and ultimately, try and be um, optimistic about life when it comes to investing. Humans are incredibly inventive. Companies are the source of most wealth creation on planet Earth. And owning a, a stake in them is, is the best way yet we've discovered in, in making yourself wealthy, and you'll have heard this a million times before, but the compounding effect on top of that means that that results in the long-term charts that you can see that you should have up on your wall next to your bed or your office whenever you're feeling down about the world and just pull up a 120-year chart of, of the Dow and you can see the ingenuity of humanity um, at work. Stuart, it was an absolute privilege having you in the Money Clinic studio. So many things to take from your interview and I'm sure we'll get a lot of emails from listeners. So Thank thanks you, Claire. Happy to help and happy to take questions from listeners. Right, well, there you go. The gauntlet is thrown down. Send in your questions for Stuart, usual address, money at ft.com. We'll get him back in the studio for another round. But thanks for coming in. Thank you, Claire. That's it for Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, this week. And we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for the show. So if you're interested in being part of a future episode and are looking for some expert money advice, then email us. Our address is money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragosa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.